We're thankful for you that you're here to join us as we worship together. Um, and even as we come to our particular portion in Ephesians chapter 1, um, talking about a gospel-inspired prayer, I, I want to remind you of something that I think uh, is a reality for us. And that's that sometimes our, our affections are moved. Right? Sometimes like you'll see that, that, that great ball game, that championship game, and your team comes out on top. And your affections are moved. Or maybe you saw that movie. It was like everything you had hoped you'd want to see in a movie. I mean, like the heroes just slaying fools. It's, it's just good stuff, right? And at the end of that, your affections are moved. We are created with affections because our God, in whose image we are made, has affection. And as a result of that, we respond to truths and experiences that are before us. And the natural result of that, like the overflow of that, is not just internal affect, our emotional, our mental, right, our, our uh, affective um, kind of response to those circumstances. But then what do we do with that? I mean, if it's a ball game, we might cheer, we might hug each other, we might give each other high fives. If it's a, you know, if it's a, a post movie, we might, we might talk about it. We want to talk about all the stuff that we noticed, all the things that we saw. If it is some experience that we have shared, we might just rejoice or we might even offer up a word of thanksgiving. That is exactly the experience that worship is meant to derive in us. I believe that is why God gives us music for the sake of worship. Why he gives us, you know, poets who have put together um, lyrics that, that just inspire us, that open our minds, that remind us of these deep gospel truths. I'm thankful for our worship teams, right, that regularly try to, to draw us in um, by lyrics, by thoughts, by music. They try, they draw us toward the goodness of our God. The question I'm, I'm proposing is, where does worshipful wonder take you? Where does worshipful wonder take us? And as we've been studying through the book of Ephesians, and we're, we're just in chapter 1. In fact, we'll finish off chapter 1. But we have just finished this amazing, super long run-on sentence that is about the blessedness of our God. Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us before he laid the foundation of the world, right? He chose us to be holy and pure, blameless before him. He predestined us. He redeemed us by the, by the, by the blood of his beloved. He, he forgave us our sins. He cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And he placed the Holy Spirit to indwell and to fulfill us and to seal us for that day when we redeem every hope that we have placed in Christ. And as a result of all of that worship for wonder, the question is, what's the thing that comes next? And in the apostle, as an aid to us, the worshipful wonder ushers him straight to prayerful consideration of others. He remembers others in prayer. 
And that's what I mean by a gospel-inspired prayer. We'll see that what, what flows out of Paul naturally from his meditation on how wondrous is the redemptive work of God through Christ, after thinking about who God is and what he has accomplished for us, where he ends up is just prayer. We'll see that it is a prayer of thanksgiving. Oh, sorry. These newfangled things you have to turn on. Apparently, all right. He'll, he'll usher us into thanksgiving. He gives thanks for all the blessings that he has just spoken of, that he has just written of, the things that we have in Christ. And then he will think about these others, these other Christians, and he'll pray for their faith to grow. And then he'll remind them of how every power that is needed, every, every instance of victory that is desired, it is all empowered by the person and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Everything that is Christ is ours, the redeemed, because of his great love for us. So remembering others in their prayer, gospel-inspired prayer. Let me read us this portion that is an actual prayer. And then from there, we'll unpack this and, uh, and look to God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, even as we have worshipped your kindness towards us, and we have drawn our attention and our hearts just to the wonder of the salvation that you have worked for our souls through Jesus Christ. Lord, we look forward to that day when we cast all of this, this temporal, um, this toil, uh, the, the trials, the difficulties, when we cast all those to the side and we find ourselves fully immersed in what eternal life is meant to be. We look forward to that hope that you have established for us in Christ. But Lord, we ask for enablement. We ask for empowerment. We ask for transformation that is sufficient for this day. Lord, we think about all those that aren't here with us. We think about our 317 group and ask that you would bless them as they gather around the scriptures, worship, and fellowship. But Lord, we ask for those that are gathered here at church this morning that we might look to you and we might think deeply about how, how to pray rightly, how to look to our God, how to respond to the wonder of the salvation that Christ has given to us. So we thank you, as we should. We ask for help in growing our faith, as we should. And we ask that you would remind us 
of how you empower all good things through your church for the glory of our God in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we begin with a blessing-based Thanksgiving. And, and I've already said, and you can guess why, we're saying that this is blessing-based because it comes, it flows out of a thankfulness for the redemption that has already been named. Look at verse 15, and we just take that first opening phrase. For this reason. That now, for this reason, will connect us directly back to what Paul has just finished saying. And what he has been finished saying is this super long sentence about how blessed God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and he flows on into our redemption, forgiveness of sins, all that he has done, choosing us before he laid down the material universe. He has done so much for us. His intention of love directed for us from time before time began. And with all of that in mind, he's saying for this reason, this is the kind of God we worship. This is everything that he has done. Every spiritual blessing, he has chosen us, he has predestined us, he has redeemed us, he has made us inheritors, and he has sealed us in the promise of his Holy Spirit. With all of that in mind, he says the first place he goes to is thanksgiving. He's thankful for redemption. This is the basis, right? The blessing of who God is in our salvation is is the basis for his immediate response in prayer. Worship is merely an act of thanksgiving. I mean, if you guys gather together on Sunday morning and it is just kind of this habit, a routine, like, like what do we do on Sundays? Well, you know, we have to sing. So we sing a few songs, you know, get that done. And then, and then the guy preaches. And it's sometimes it's good, sometimes long, sometimes boring. Sometimes he has a funny joke in there, right? Like, like it works. And then we're done. You have minimized what is meant to be the natural expression of our soul. Why do we sing so many songs? Why do we have so many prayers? Because that is natural for those that understand the redemption that Christ has won for us. It is natural to those that understand who God is and why he matters and how he has given us an identity, a purpose, and a value that far and away exceeds anything that we deserve. Because he is wondrous. So thanks flows out of us. See, that's Paul saying, for this reason, because of all that Christ has done on our behalf to rescue us, planned out from before the laying down of the universe, for that reason, and he says furthermore, in the second part of verse 15, because I have heard of your faith and love. Look at all of verse 15 again. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith and love in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. See, he is thankful for their faith and for their love. Faith is, is kind of how they are directing their devotion to God. He, he, based on all that God has done doctrinally that he has just spilled out, he says, on that basis, and then I look at you. So he's looking at redemption theoretically, theologically, right? Um, in terms of the entire theology of who God is. And then he's looking at individuals and he's seeing redemption as a theory and he's seeing redemption lived out. And he's saying, I've seen or I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. In other words, I've seen what redemption can become in you. And so because of your faith, which is devotion directed to the Lord, 
And because of your love that is directed to all the saints, right? You have both duty and devotion. Or let me reverse that. You have faith in the Lord Jesus, your devotion. You have love towards all the saints, your duty. And the fleshing out of that is redemption. I give thanks for that. For, for the doctrinal truth that is salvation. And for the reality of your faith and love. Because that is redemption lived out. Paul's spiritual instinct at the wondrous work of God in redemption is to look to the Lord in thanksgiving and then to look to other brothers and sisters in Christ for what God has done in them. The thing that I would point out to you is there's a complete absence of my faith, my conduct, my duties, my energies, my experiences. There is no emphasis on the self spirituality that is so prevalent today. I'm wondering about my motives of um, whether or not I should uh, go and worship. You're wondering about your motives. Why don't you worry about thinking about who God is and coming to worship? You you know, like we are so self-consumed about what our experience is and Paul's immediate attention when he thinks about how great is God's salvation is that he looks out and he goes, man, I see a ton of people living out this truth. See, he's so other-minded that the first place he goes to is, man, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, because I've heard of your love towards all the saints, I don't stop giving thanks for you. A similar notion in Colossians 1, 3, and 4, Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Whatever it is that we think that we understand about who God is, however deep or mature we think our theology might be, however strong our opinions about how we should do this or how we should do that or how we should think about these things, the final result is that God loves us and his love is proved out in that he has sent his son to take our place in death and damnation. And the evidence of that love spills out not to just thankfulness for our own souls, But thankfulness that there is an entire community of faith through the generations. This is what it means to be thankful. And not thankful just for a moment. Not thankful just for a gift. And not just thankful for an individual response to something that we've been prayerfully seeking. Not just thankful for circumstances. And we should give thanks for all of those things I just mentioned. But be thankful for what the gospel does. What our God does through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The final thing I'll say about verse 15 and 16 is that first part of verse 16, right? He's thankful always. He said, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And let me just clarify, right? Um, uh, Based on that parallel that we saw in Colossians 1 that we just read, right? Um, Paul's not saying that, you know, everywhere he goes, he's like, oh, Ephesian Christians, thank the Lord. You know, hey, how's it going? Yeah, let me get a hamburger. Ephesian Christians, thank the Lord, right? Like, he's not just like walking around and there's constant like giving of thanks for these Ephesian Christians. That's that's not what he's talking about. He's saying that whenever he goes to prayer, there is is, um, uh, a part or, or, you know, a part of the characteristic of of his praying, of his regular praying, Includes thanksgiving and includes thanksgiving for those Christians that he knows that, is, that are doing well in faith and love. 
So he says, I do not cease giving thanks for you. He means, I do not cease to give thanks for you in my regular times of prayer. And for um, a pharisaically trained Christian with a Jewish mindset, he probably prays his three times a day. That's what the, that's what the Jews were taught to do if you're going to do this right, right? You pray in the mornings. Then you take time in the, in the middle of your day and you pray. And then you take time in the evening prayer before, you know, the evening things and you settle down and you go to bed. So Paul's probably saying on a regular basis, I'm always reminding myself of the individuals that I should pray for. I think it's a, it's a blessed idea that he has built into his regular prayer times. Not just the rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. But this idea that I want to give thanks to the Lord for individuals, for salvation, for the good things that God has done. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I would say this. When you think about trying to pray better, pray more, lead with thanksgiving. That's what the apostle seems to do. If in your heart you realize, man, I, I could be a little more prayerful, and I'll be honest, I could always be more prayerful, right? Lead with thanksgiving. Begin with, begin with the biggest things first. Not just, Lord, thank you, that I have a car to drive. That's a blessing. I'm glad for that. You should give thanks to the Lord for that. But I'm saying begin with the biggest, the most eternal things first. Thank you, Lord, for my salvation. Thank you for the salvation of those that are members, my brothers and sisters in Christ in my church. Thank you, Lord, that you have blessed through the generations so many sinners to know your grace. Thank you that you overcome our own selfishness, our sinfulness, our pride, our utter foolishness, and you grant us the humility to trust in you. Begin with thankfulness. Lead with thankfulness. That's what the apostle Paul does. That's what he models for us in terms of what it means to offer a prayer that's gospel-inspired. It begins with a blessing-based thanksgiving. Then it flows into this faith-growing petition. So this is the stuff that he's praying specifically for. This is the asking Petition means really just to make a request or to ask something of, of someone that is greater than yourself. And it flows out of the second part of verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Look at the second part of verse 16. Remembering you in my prayers. You know, petitionary prayer. One commentator says that petitionary prayer is an essential weapon in the apostolic armory. If that means very little to you, the idea is that, man, if there is something you would like to do spiritually, the, the greatest place to start is, okay, lead with thanksgiving. And then the first thing you should ask for is the asking of those things concerning other believers because the petitioning of God for his continual work in the life and faith of others, man, that's a tremendous spiritual weapon for the battle that we face. You begin with thanksgiving, you proceed with petition, but that petition is gospel-saturated. It's faith-growing. It's intended to ask for something that would honor the Lord and that would make him known. He begins with spiritual insight in verse 17. So notice the singular word, that. Verse 17 says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and, the, and in the knowledge of him. The that connects us to the actual content of what Paul would request. If you're curious, what would the great apostle Paul pray for? 
as far as other Christians are concerned. He, he spells it out literally by saying, right, I, I pray for you regularly, right? I am lifting you up. Um, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then here it comes. That, what? Whatever he says after that word tells us this is the content of Paul the Apostle's prayer for other Christians. John Stott says this, what Paul does in Ephesians 1 and therefore encourages us to copy is both to keep praising God that in Christ all spiritual blessings are ours and to keep praying that we may know the fullness of what he has given us. See, John Stott, right? Um, I I almost just said John as if he's my pal, right? But John Stott, right, that great theologian and teacher of uh, the past generation, he says, right, like what Paul models for us is praise the Lord. Keep on praising God for every spiritual blessing, but then keep praying that he would continue to fulfill what he has already given to us. Right, so, so that's what we pick up in verse 17. And here's the phrase, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I'll just say this about, you know, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory. Um, he uses terminology that is very similar, if not almost identical, in verse 3 of chapter 1. In verse 3, he, he calls God, God the Father, the God and, sorry, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I think Paul does this intentionally. He uses the same title for God the Father as he did earlier, and he does that, I think, so that, so that he draws us back to verse 3 to say, okay, wait a minute, I've heard him use this interesting phrase before, right? The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he's used it in verse 3 when he speaks about how we have in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're supposed to be drawn back to that, to remember that we have already received every spiritual blessing because of who God is, because of what Christ has done. And then that is, that is the glory of this heavenly Father, right? The Father of glory. And that in remembering what he has already given to us, that's where his request comes. It's almost like he's saying, God, this is what you do. So could you continue to do what you do? You give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Lord, would you continue to grant that to these Ephesian brothers and sisters? May they, and this is the phrasing of the actual request, may you give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He asked for three things. If you're looking, if you're looking at that, you know, at that verse carefully, right? He asked for wisdom and revelation and knowledge. Three terms that speak of uh, our mental facilities and how we might use the minds, the hearts that God has given to us. Um, and here the question is, is it a request? May, may you give them the spirit, the spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation? Or is it, would you give them a spirit, a human spirit, a disposition of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him? And I think there's a little bit of both here because, because the definite article is not there. 
So my, my suspicion is it is not the Holy Spirit, as the ESV implies by capitalizing spirit, right? I think more likely it is, it is our disposition, our soul, our heart spirit. But even in saying that, the way that it's constructed, it implies that whatever wisdom and revelation and knowledge should be given to us, it must come by the work and the, and the majesty and the purposes of the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that makes sense. So that whatever wisdom we're talking about, it's a spiritual wisdom. Whatever revelation we're talking about is a spiritual revelation. Spiritual in the sense that it is Holy Spirit derived, granted, and manifested in us. And so what would it be like to have this Holy Spirit given wisdom? Wisdom is that great term for truth applied. Um, I, I like to use the idea of expertise. It means that you develop a skill set and you get better at something. That you develop an instinct to be able to play a little bit better at something, to, to work a little bit better at something, to create a little more creatively something. Right? It, it means that you have, you have gained an insight, a kind of an applicational instinct, that you are able to apply things in ways that might be surprising or that might be unexpected. See, that's wisdom. It is a general idea of being able to apply God's truth in a variety of ways. And that is granted to us by the Holy Spirit. It's how we live and the expertise to live well. The second term, uh, revelation, that's a little different. That's a little different. He may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Revelation means that there is a truth that is now unpacked. I think what, what, what we might take away from that, if I could use a single word, the idea of clarification of truth. I said a single word and I gave you a phrase, but clarification, right? Clarification of truth. In other words, if the Holy Spirit should give us revelation, it's not to say he gives us new direction or he gives us something brand new that has never been heard. The idea that he gives us clarity. Clarity about what truth is. Clarity about what doctrine is. Clarity about how we should think about who God is and what he has done. So he is saying, let the Holy Spirit grant to you an expertise in truth applied. Let him grant to you clarification, revelation of all the truths that you learn. That you might become more endowed with clarity of every truth that comes by way of the Holy Spirit into your life. See, to, to grow in wisdom and insight of, of God's salvation and his salvation plan in human history. Um, and to live in a way that, right, that speaks of the gospel reality in our own lives. This is what we're talking to. This is what Paul is praying. He's not praying, Lord, rescue the Ephesian Christians. He's saying, no, God bless you guys. Your faith and your love has already been known to me. But can I ask for more? May you grow in the expertise of living, your wisdom. May you grow in the clarification of truth, your commitment to revelation. May you grow in those very insights that the Holy Spirit would grant to you. So that you might know him better. And this is the third phrase. Paul asks for giving of the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the realm of the knowledge of him. In the sphere, right, of knowing him well. You guys by now understand that when scripture speaks of the idea of knowing someone, it is not a disinterested gathering of data, right? It is not an issue of intelligence 
and how much information you pack into something. It is about the personal, relational knowledge of someone. And we can talk about like, hey, um, do you know, you know, do you know Kathy Park? And you say, yes, I do. You know, she's shorter than you, right? Not you. Some of you guys are shorter than Kath, right? Um, shorter than me, right? Shorter than you, and uh, she's really sweet. She's really nice. She talks pleasantly, and she likes to encourage people. And I say, yeah, that's all true. But see, you've just given me a, a number of facts, some things that maybe by your experience that you have accumulated. I could say, no, but I know Kathy, right? And we understand what we mean by that. That there's a commitment of love, there's an experience and joy of affection, there is a knowledge that is relational, and that's what Scripture is talking about. God is not saying, and Paul is not saying, I offer a prayer that you, by the Holy Spirit, might grow in your wisdom application of truth, in the, the, the conviction and the clarity of what God's Word says, so that you might have better details of the theology of Jesus. He's saying, no. I am praying that you grow in wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, in the knowing of him, so that you might be able to say, yeah, these are some of the facts. He was a carpenter's son, you know. He may have had long hair. Not sure. Like, right, like all these interesting details that paint a picture of us, for us, that is not nearly as significant of, oh, I know my Savior. I know my Jesus. I know who the Son of God is. Knowledge is not just data. It is personal, meaning it is you and the Lord. It is consequential, meaning that it changes everything. Our relational knowledge of Him affects every part of our lives. And it is culpable, meaning it has ramifications, right? It has accountability. It is the basis, our knowledge of Christ is the basis of a transformative living faith. Paul's prayer is that, that the Holy Spirit might grant to us wisdom and truth so that we might grow in the depth of our relationship with Christ. True knowledge right, of God in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Spiritual insight and therefore enlightened hearts. Verse 18 through 19, he says, having the eyes of your heart. So he's digging down deeper. Like, what does it mean to have this knowledge of him, to grow in the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ? Well, verse 18 and 19 will clarify. It'll dig a little deeper. It refers to enlightened hearts. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. And then let me just explain that phrase, this idea of enlightened hearts. Our our English translation says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Enlightened. That's, that's really good. It's a good way of, of translating something that is an unusual phrase. And it's not unusual in the scriptures because the idea of, of having our hearts enlightened comes up often in the Old Testament as, as well. And the point is simply that the lights turn on. 
that the lights of our, our, of our hearts or the eyes of our hearts might be open. And I know that's weird to think about your heart having eyes. The idea is that it receives truthfulness, that it receives uh, what, is, what is accurate about who God is and what he said he has created the universe to be. And then having received that, it situates itself in our, in our soul core, in our hearts. Right? The heart in Scripture is not your emotional center. It is let me take that back. It is your emotional center, but it's also your mental center. It's your moral center. It is all of the thing that makes us distinctly and uniquely human. You know, we should be kind to animals. Why? Because they do, they do suffer pain. Like, you know, like you poke them, they go, like that. Like that, that's not nice. Why? Because they actually experience that pain. They won't write a journal about that, right? They, they don't write poems of darkness because of that. We do that. Why? Because that's how we are built. Our hearts become then the center of our being. And what hurts us, we do something with, and that flows out in our speech, in our conduct, in our attitudes, in our emotions. Or if we receive divine truth, right? If we receive wisdom from the Spirit, revelation from the Spirit, knowledge of Christ, then that affects us. And what is in our core then comes out in what we say, what we don't say, how we act, what we do, how we worship, our affections, that all flows out of the heart. So Proverbs 4.23, keep your hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And then, you know, the multiple times that Jesus says stuff like in Matthew 15, where, you know, it's not the stuff that goes into your mouth that defiles you, it's what comes out of your heart. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. That stuff defiles you because it's already in there. It's your heart. And Paul is, is, is requesting in particularly that those hearts, our hearts, might be further enlightened, might be shown more and more of the truth of who God is and what he has accomplished in Christ. And he says in the net effect of enlightened hearts, he gives us three. Like, look at the rest of verse 18. That you may know what is the one hope to which he has called you. Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mind? These three things. Hope, right? What did I put? Riches and power. I know, don't worry, we'll get to riches because you guys are freaking out. Might be a different gospel here, right? But it's not, okay? So hope, let's begin with hope. The hope to which he has called you. Paul is saying, right, that, man, I would be desperate and I would beseech the Lord to grant you wisdom, insight, truthfulness, you know, relational knowledge with Jesus Christ so that you may understand what is the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. Okay, can I say something? This phrase is interesting because it's not the hope of our calling. Not here. Now that, that, could ha- that happens, I think, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. It's used in other places in the New Testament. It's used. But here, Paul is saying, he's not saying, rather, that this hope, right, is the hope of our calling, but it is the hope that is part of God's calling of us. The hope to which he has called you. This hope, right, is connected to the fact that he has called you to himself, it's not just about what I hope in. He is saying you already, already have a hope. Because once God has called you, then what he has called you to, that is the focus of your hope. It's not just a rescue from sin, 
But there's a looking forward to something that God has done in his calling of us. He hasn't just called us to say, okay, let's stop sinning right now. Let's be done with this. No, God has called us to say, you sinner and rebel, I'm calling you to myself for all of eternity. Your salvation didn't end at the moment that you, I don't know, said the prayer or through the pine cone in the fire, whatever thing that happened, right? The circumstance of how you came to faith or you expressed that conversion, it didn't end there. It, it began there. See, hope is not some vague expression. It's not some wishful Disney thinking of a future something. It is a certain future. It is the very thing by which he has, for which he has called you. What God has begun in you, well, he will certainly perfect in you. Why? Because that's the entirety of his calling. God doesn't call and go, Yoo-hoo, Nam, I want you to believe in Jesus just enough for salvation and good luck with the rest of your life. No, he is saying, Yoo-hoo, Nam, I want you to believe in Christ unto salvation and the fullness of that salvation that will come with that. Or the phrase the scripture often uses, eternal life. Because salvation doesn't, right, it doesn't kind of stop or stutter once we come to conversion and we got to kind of work ourselves out. Salvation begins and ends in the work of God, in the calling of God. He has called us not just to be rescued from our momentary sins, but to salvation, to righteousness, to resurrected bodies, to eternal life, to his glorious eternal existence. And that kind of hope is supposed to fuel us. That kind of hope is supposed to hold us. That kind of hope is supposed to sustain us when, when things don't feel like they can be sustained. Colossians 1, 3 to 5, we always thank God. I read this first two verses already. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. When we believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're granted a view of everything that is to come. There, I realize in worshipful moments, and if you're a believer, a brother and sister in Christ, you know what I'm talking about. There are moments in our worship or in our reading of scripture, our meditation about who God is and what he's done for us, that we're just caught up in the thought, Lord, I, I can't wait to go home. I don't know if you've ever been away from home for a long time, you get homesick, and you think, man, I, I'd love to just go home, and your earthly home, and your earthly home was, you know, fraught with, with difficulties and occasional, you know, um, disappointments and being upset with each other and those kind of things. But nevertheless, when you're gone from home for a long time, you, you feel like there's a place you belong, I can't wait to go home. The hope of his calling is that I can't wait to go home, but to that home that is promised, to the home that Christ has already prepared for us, to, to, the, to the home that, that spiritually speaking, it, it is our, our place where we, we know that's, that's where we want to be. To cast aside all the things that we have to struggle with in this life, all the sin that still clings to us, all the difficulties, the anxieties, the fears, right? All the trepidations of a world that is still caught up in sinfulness and, and diabolical purposes to be free from all of that pain and struggle and to be home. See, this is what Paul is saying. 
He is saying that, that if your eyes, the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened with the wisdom and the revelation that comes from the Holy Spirit in that relational knowledge of Jesus Christ, that you might know that hope, that we would be driven by what is to come and not merely what is in this life. That we would not be captive, right, to the fears and anxieties of this moment, but we'd look forward to that day. That's what he's saying. That you live with this hopeful anticipation of what God has begun and what he will not fail to accomplish. Well, the second thing on the list, if he's going to talk about what it is that you may know, right, the hope to which you have been called, secondly, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The way that this phrase is conducted, it could mean one of two things. Either the riches of the inheritance, that is our inheritance, the riches of our inheritance, right, as God's children that is to come. That's possible. I think that's less likely the way that Paul writes this. More likely, I think, is this idea. The wealth of the glory of God's inheritance in us. Meaning this. We are God's inheritance. We are His. We who have hoped in Christ are His glorious inheritance. We have been chosen by Him and we are claimed to be His own. We are His portion. And I think Paul's point is that, man, if you, can, if you can think of the hope that is given to us in God's calling of us to salvation and redemption in Christ. And then again, if I could pile upon that, the amazing wealth that is his glorious inheriting of us. Not because we are so good, but because he values us that highly. That God thinks of us as his portion. He's made us his own, his glorious inheritance. And having set himself upon us and having set his, his wealth, his glorious grace upon us, Paul is saying we have a richness, a treasure, a value in Christ Jesus that is greater than the greatest human being that might have ever walked on the face of the planet. You might think, man, I know this guy. He's like the greatest basketball player that ever. Nothing compared to the wealth of us being God's glorious inheritance. I know this dude. He's like the greatest brain surgeon. Like he's, he's amazing. Nothing compared to the treasure of being God's glorious inheritance. F.F. Bruce says that God should set such a high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition, and still bearing too many traces of their former state, might well seem incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ. As from the beginning, he chose them in Christ. Paul's praying that his readers, you and I, might appreciate the extraordinary value that God has placed upon us. Guys, I always want to be careful because we always want to say we don't deserve it. That part's true. But lest you hear you don't deserve it, you don't deserve it, you don't deserve it to the point that you think that, well, God gets kind of more more or less tolerates us because he's so kind. God treasures us. Why? I have no idea. But he does. And that is the wealth of the knowledge of the love of God in Jesus Christ. 
Does he treasure all human beings? Of course not. Scriptures make it clear that he is hostile to those that are hostile to him. But to those that he have called to himself in Christ, he has laid down hostilities. And he has made us his glorious inheritance. And we are to live in the rich treasure of knowing that God treasures us in Christ. So Paul said, man, I wish that you would grow in that hope with which he has called you. You grow in the riches of the knowledge of us being his glorious inheritance, right? And you will grow in what is third, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. From this moment on, he's going to pile on this idea of power and he's going to express in, in the strongest language that we might, uh, we might find of this surpassing magnitude, right, of power that is displayed in God for the sake of our salvation and for the sake of our hope and for the sake of his glory. His point is to convince Christians that God's power is sufficient for anything and everything pertaining to life and salvation. There's an interesting change that happens, right, in the midst of this, this in, in verse um, uh, in verse 18 and then into verse 19. The second part of verse 18, that third thing, right? What is the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints are? And in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? See, this whole time he's been talking about that the eyes of your heart might be open, that you may know what is the hope to which, you, you know, he has called you, right? Like, all the good stuff that is for you. And then all of a sudden, verse 19, he says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? He includes himself in. Because this is, a, this is a all of us community thing. This is a Christian reality, right? A corporate dynamic that we experience the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, all of us that are Christians, redeemed by the blood of Christ, all of us who believe. I like the the NASB's translation of immeasurable. It uses the term surpassing. Or if you have the New King James Version, exceeding. It is a description of something that is continually growing. And so the ESV captures it right. It is immeasurable. But the idea is that it it is the difference between, you know, velocity. Okay, danger. You know, danger. I'm wandering into science again. And so I'm going to see something weird. So take it with a grain of salt, right? Difference between velocity and acceleration. I think, right? Right, because acceleration means that, that the speed keeps increasing, right? Not a little bit, yeah, I think that's right. right? It, it, velocity can be just steady. If you're on the freeway and you're going 60 miles an hour, right, that is your current velocity. This is the speed I'm going. I'm not going faster and faster. But if I'm accelerating, then as you go through, it just gets bigger or faster. In fact, that's the word. It's a word that's acceleration. It means not just immeasurable, like it's super high, like I am traveling super fast. No, it's saying I am traveling faster and faster. The greatness of God's power is such that it is accelerating still, that we have not seen the end of it, that it continues to gather steam and grab grab more and more power and more and more evidence that it is growing and growing in its capacities. It's a significant term. And then all the terms that start to just multiply, right? What is the immeasurable greatness? Listen to all the power terms. Of his power, dunamis, the idea of something that is explosive, just overall majestic power towards us who believe 
according to the working, that's the energeo, that's the, that's the energy, that's, that's the things with capacity to get done, right? The actionable power, right? According to the working of his great might. And that combines two terms in the Greek there, right? Ixkus, which, which just means strength, might, and the kratos, which means the kind of might that could conquer. I, I know all the young people in the room are thinking about a particular right, um, protagonist in the video game that kills all the Greek gods. Good. Greek gods deserve to be killed, right? But the term, that, the, the name that they give to that hero, Kratos, is exactly conquering might. So if you think about it, it's, he, he's saying there is this acceleration of, of power, Right? Of what God is capable of doing. And then he just piles on terms. Exceeding power. Dunamis. Right? Working power. Right? Energy. A great might or strength or physical force combined with kratos. The ability to conquer. I mean, if I give you a weird translation, it would be something like, I desire for you that God would let you know the surpassing massiveness of God's raw power for us who believe, in accordance with the empowering of his mighty conquering hand. I mean, this is the all power. And when we think about God being all powerful, he is. He literally creates an entire universe by speaking. That is nuts, right? I mean, Thanos had to at least, you know, snap his fingers after he gets all these affinity stones, he does all that kind of crazy stuff. God, in his infinite power, just thinks something out loud, and it just becomes. And with all of his endless might, his power, his ability, Paul's reminding us he applies his great powers and might to our salvation so that we might know what is the hope of our calling. Paul said, man, I just want you to grow in the, 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 the wealth of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. He wants us to understand the hope that God has called us to, how much value he has placed upon us as his glorious inheritance, and how much power he has. How powerful is your God? And the answer is not, oh, he created the universe. Yeah, that's true. But that's nothing compared to the fact that he is working a work specifically in you and in us to bring us to that glorious end that he has desired. We'll get to the last point. A Christ-centered power in verses 20 to 23. Well, something I should mention to you and the difficulty of all of Ephesians 1 is that it, it, it is broken down in a flow of thought, right? It's like heading down river. One thing connects to the next that connects to the next. It's not like your, you know, your, your typical English essay or your history essay where you have a thesis and you have three or four points that support back to that one thesis. No, Paul's going for him. How good is our God? I give thanks. I give thanks for him. I give thanks for you. Right? And now that I think of you, I want to pray specifically that your faith is growing. Right? In the knowledge of him in wisdom, in insight, in revelation, that you are growing in the, in the knowledge of, of his power 
And then from that, he flows into what are we talking about when we're talking about power? It's this declaration of a Christ-centered power in verses 20 through 23 that is just kind of downstream of his thoughts. It is the, the next step to talk about because these are the things that are just flowing out of his heart. This is the third thing that he is, he is thinking of in our outline. And it's all about power, which we have just mentioned, right? Verse 20. It's the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. I'll say briefly, the first two things that he mentions, and he really mentions them together. I almost put them together, but I thought we might mention them separately. That there is a power that is demonstrated. God's almightiness is demonstrated, particularly in how he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and by exalting him, seating him at the right hand in, heaven, in the heavenly places. In other words, as far as Paul is concerned here, one of the greatest displays of God's power towards us has been, has been demonstrated in the person of Christ, in particular through his resurrection and his exaltation. God worked these things out. He demonstrated his power. And all of this power, right, Paul is going to say, is directed towards his redeemed people. It's a power to raise Christ. And we know exactly what that means. Christ was raised from the dead. He died a sinner's death on the cross. But death couldn't hold him. He was raised to newness of life. And not just, not just resuscitated. Not just respond, right? It's not that he died and that God gave him the exact same body, Right? As, as minutes before he passed. It's not just that his wounds are fixed, his heart is beating again, and his, you know, his brain waves are back to normal. No, it's a new resurrected body. So that we could say rightly that there are many people raised from the dead throughout all of Scripture. Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection from the dead. In other words, he represents the resurrection. These other people might have been raised momentarily like Lazarus. But listen, Lazarus isn't still around. Lazarus, he died. So he, he was dead, you know, four or five days in the grave, he, you know, resuscitated so that he walking around, lived a normal life, got old and died again. No, he's awaiting the resurrection like Jesus' resurrection. So that 1 Corinthians 15 is saying that these bodies, even if it's, you know, cancer free, even if it's bacteria free, I don't know if you're supposed to be bacteria free, whatever, Right? Biology majors, give me a break, right? Like, whatever it is, like, like without aging, right? These bodies, that's not sufficient. First Corinthians 15 says you need an imperishable body to match the imperishable life. You need an eternal capable body, right, to match an eternal life. You need a heavenly redone body that will match the new heavens and the new earth and eternal life. That is done in Christ. So that what is dead is not just brought to life, but it's like what is old is now made new. It is the power of the resurrection, the power that God can take something that is dead and give it not just life, but new life. That's the hope of the gospel for us, that whatever you leave behind, you can leave it behind because God's power is sufficient to give you a brand new existence, power, reality power of resurrection, but also the power to exalt Christ. The kind of power that he works in us is the kind of power that he worked in Christ. 
as he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The right hand is a place of prestige, honor, and authority. And what, what this refers to, I think, is a reference to Psalm 110.1, where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I make your enemies a foot, uh, your footstool. And Jesus, in fact, claimed this before the Sanhedrin. He said, right, that the Son of Man would be seated at the right hand of power. And then he adds from, from the book of Daniel, and he'll be coming on the clouds, right? In Matthew 26, Mark 12, Luke 20. In one of his illegal trials, Jesus literally connects himself to Psalm 110. That while he is resurrected... That's a claim that he is alive and that he will live forever. He is also exalted, seated at the right hand of God. And that claims that he is enthroned, given authority at the right hand of the Father so that he reigns forever. Resurrection, he lives forever. Exaltation, he reigns forever. And it goes on to speak of what that reign looks like. It's not just that he is seated, right, in a really good spot. Verse 20 says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's above every name that is named. Oh, sorry. He's far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. He is, right? He is before all things. Anything that is a level of power, Christ is superior. If, if, if there are things that are troublesome, Christ is superior. If there are things that are, like, you know, difficult for us to resist, Christ is superior. If there is spiritual power, if there is political power, if there is emotional trouble, if there is anything that has some kind of ramification or power over us, the point is Christ is seated above that. His exaltation is proof and promise that his power is victory over all of those things, above every name that is named. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean that anyone that has a name. It means anyone that can be given a title. We're going to call that guy He-Man. Why? Because, man, that guy is a man's man. He's a man. He's a He-Man. He's above that, right? That guy is super artificial intelligence, crazy smart. Why? Because I don't know, but he's a genius amongst geniuses. Christ is above that. There is no title you can affix on anyone that would be greater than his. His authority, his power, his position, now and forever, comprehensively, that is his power. It's a power that God has given to us and demonstrated in his resurrection, in his exaltation above all things, and then to his church. And this is the last thing we'll mention. Sorry. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Pause right there. The phrase all things used in scripture refers to everything that exists. So, so the point is that Christ, literally, everything is put under his feet. He is head over everything. He has authority over every little thing that is in existence, invisible or visible, right? spiritual or physical, it doesn't matter. He is the final authority. And God has placed him in authority over all things. It says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. 
he gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, you could read that as he gave him to be head over everything in the church, but that's not what the preposition says. He gave Christ as the head and the ruler of everything in the universe. He gave that person, that majesty, that sovereign one, he gave him to the church. Meaning that the church is blessed to have him as our Lord. The church is blessed to have him as our master. The church is blessed with the powerful one presiding in and through us. In verse 23, it gets deeper. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things. It says in God's infinite grace in calling us to ourselves and gathering us as a community of followers of Jesus Christ. He has rescued us. He has promised us. He has given us hope, a future, right? He has granted us the knowledge of his goodness to his great glory. And he's given to us Jesus Christ, his son, who is the head of anything and everything, every name that could be named, every title that could be given, anything that has ever existed, is created, that is powerful or is insignificant, all of that is Christ. He is above and, uh, and an authority and Lord over it all, and he has chosen to grant Christ to us, his church body, that we might be the fullness of him, who fills all things. He fills all things. We have the privilege of being the representation of his fullness. So that the way we live, all the stuff that Paul has been praying for in these, in these, in these Christians, the way that we think, the way that we worship, the way that we respond to each other, the way that we walk out faith and love, the way that continue to grow in the things and the knowledge of the Lord, the way that we cherish the gospel and live it out well, that is the display of the fullness of him who fills everything. That is our privilege. That is our responsibility. And that is our joy. Because this is how much God loves those that he has redeemed. See, this is what it means to pray with the inspiration of the gospel hanging over you. This is what it means to be in wonder of who God is and what he has accomplished in Jesus Christ. And then to take that to prayer and to a heart desire to see other Christians see the fullness of this so we can worship together, so we can represent him well, and so we can give glory to the Son until we are home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us in giving us the scriptures, the conviction of salvation and life in Christ, of calling us to yourself, everything that we could never think or imagine to be able to do. Oh, Lord, you are good to us in Christ. Would we magnify him and we give you all the glory. We thank you for the privilege of being your own and for all those things that the prayer of Paul represents. May we take up that prayer. May we take up that desire and we take up that responsibility to represent you well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.